Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back, everybody. Last time we had Travis Patton on, and we were talking about, at the end, we were talking about the, the temple drama as, a, as the journey of, of a soul. This week, we have Travis back with us to talk about the journey of the soul again. And this time, we're going to do it through the lens of Dante Alighieri, the poet, the author of the Divine Comedy. Travis is a lover of Dante and his poetry and has spent a lot of time reading and rereading it. And he and I have taught a class together where we guided people through this poem, mostly Travis. He, he served as our resident Virgil. Uh, to guide folks through Dante. And so it's great to have him with us today again to guide us through the poem. And to start us off, Travis, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Dante's poem, The Divine Comedy, means to you, and then maybe give us an overview of it. Well, the thing that is so uh, distinct about Dante's comedy is, is the amount of humanity that's in it. I mean, he gives you such a wide swath of life. Um, you see, you know, you meet all sorts of people. You get to know them quickly. These are memorable episodes. And uh, there's so much more to Dante than we think of in the popular conception, right? We, we, think, we think of Dante and we think of hell. We think of Inferno and we think of all these gory, gruesome punishments and so forth. But uh, like Dorothy Sayers says, if you just read Inferno without uh, reading Purgatory and Paradise. It's like going to Paris and just viewing the sewers. You know, they may be really interesting, but it, it, they exist so that the rest of the city can't exist. And that's exactly what Inferno is to the rest of the poem. It's there so that the rest can exist. It's kind of like when I was in school, I was in the half of the class that, uh, that let the top half of the class exist. You know, you have to have the whole picture here and the inferno is only part of it. So that's funny, Travis. Well, why don't we start off then with the poem itself by you giving us an overview of it? So, as we as I mentioned, we've got inferno, purgatory, and paradise. Now, inferno is the one we're most familiar with. These are sinners who who refused to repent in life, and they go to hell. And, uh, and they're stuck in their punishments. They're stuck in their sins. And the punishments they get are really um, fitting to the sin. You know, not, This is called contrapasso in, in, in Dante. And that means counterpunishment. It's very similar to what we see in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. In fact, you could make a good argument that, that, that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is, is based on the Divine Comedy. But when you go underground in the divine in, in, in Charlie's chocolate factory, you have all these temptations and so forth. 
and the kids fall into them, right? So this this kid who won't stop eating ends up swelling up and or, or drowns in the chocolate thing. And, you know, all these punishments are fitting. And that's how it is in Dante, right? So it's almost in a way that people make their own hell. But if you have repented in the most minimal degree, if you have reached out to God at some point before you die, um, just turned and looked away from what the sins you were doing are and looked towards God, then you qualify for purgatory. And then you could get into purgatory and you work to purify your soul through what we see as punishments, but they're purgations. They're things to work these sins out of you so that you become like God and can uh, then be in God's presence. And that brings us to paradise, which is, you know, Dante reaches the very top of Mount Purgatory, and then he ascends insensibly up into heaven, and he meets the people who are in the presence of God. And he, it's, it takes the place of a journey through the different spheres. The, uh, the medieval conception of, of uh, the cosmos was that the earth was at the center. And then, and then once you get up into the various spheres, the first one's the lunar, and then you have all the, all the planets and so forth. Uh, you know, the sun and all the planets. And those are the various spheres, and they all go around the earth. And everything under the earth is, is the sublunar world and uh and it's changeable and perfect but once you get up there everything's perfect and that's so all of that's heaven and uh, dante goes through these different spheres meeting different people and learning different things along the way until he finally gets his heart desire his heart's desire at the very end of paradise no spoilers travis now maybe we should contextualize the poem a little bit too we mentioned uh, it's medieval right yeah, the thing that really got me into the Divine Comedy was, you know, my my interest in Ascension texts. And so I first looked at Dante as an Ascension text, and uh, which, which it definitely is. And it's fascinating, actually, to see how some of these things, even though it is very much rooted in the medieval world, and in fact is basically an encyclopedia of, of medieval uh, theology, philosophy, and uh, knowledge of the world, but so much of it is, you know, it, you know, has similarities even to ascension texts going all the way back to ancient Egypt. You know, the Egyptian journey to the underworld. You have to go and and meet these different people along the way. To, you know, these different beasts and, and monsters and things that you have to pass uh, by giving them the right uh, spell or the right sign or password or so forth. And uh, and that's exactly how it works with. With Dante, Virgil takes him along, and they meet these monsters that are that are frightening, and Virgil quells them by saying the right words and so forth. So, and there's lots of other different interesting things. But so, Travis, at yes. the outset, Christopher asked, you know, what what does this mean to you? And it, I, I'm someone who's an amateur, someone who's read very little of of Dante. I, I have read the Inferno, and that's that's it. But I, I got a sense for you know structurally what he was trying to accomplished there. And you just mentioned that, you know, it kind of follows this pattern of, of descent and ascent texts. And, you know, we see this in the Odyssey, in the Aeneid. Uh, you mentioned this Egyptian text. You see it in Norse mythology of this idea that you've, you've somehow got a balance. There's got to be balance to the cosmos. For all the, the good of paradise, you've got to have the balance of the evil in, in, in Inferno. 
and it follows this pattern of God's divine justice. So there's, you know, not only is there mercy and justice, but justice itself just implies that when you do something, there's this consequence. And and that's kind of, in your explanation to me earlier, that's kind of how Inferno is represented, that these people choose their own hell. Yeah. And so going into reading Dante as an amateur, what can someone expect to get out of it? What meaning have you been able to pull out of it for yourself? And what can an amateur going in reading Dante for the first time expect to get out of it? Riley, it's it's so difficult to sum up what Dante means to me, or even what Dante is. It is just such a vast, enormous poem that that really to to read through and and think about and kind of get into is is really a life changing experience. It makes you look at yourself, and we see this in the very first line, where uh, you know it says midway upon. Our, our life's journey. He brings us into it from the very beginning and then and does it completely on. So you're just kind of insensibly lulled into the poem and you start being Dante in a way. You know, you start identifying with him and he undergoes this transformation. And if you're really working and reading closely in the poem, you can undergo the same trans transformation. A poem like this is not meant to be just light reading. It's not meant to be, um, well, I'll qualify that. It is meant to be light reading. He wrote, he wrote it in the Italian when everybody at the time thought he should read it in Latin, but he wanted to reach the average person. But there's depths and depths in this. And as we see Dante transform throughout the poem and become more like God, if we are reading the poem in, in, in the right way, in a careful way, and thinking about how these things pertain to our lives, then we get transformed along with him. So I want to push back on this aspect of it, and I want you to try to walk me through a level of understanding that at this point right now is a little bit beyond me. The way I read Inferno and the transformation that Dante made and the approbation of God upon Dante as he... As he um, ascends out of hell, and who Dante has become personally is not someone I want to become, um, at least from my current viewpoint. So this is where I, I kind of need you to walk me through where you think Dante has been transformed in a positive way. Inferno is a representation of God's justice, and there's a point in the Inferno where Dante tries to show mercy to one of these wretched souls, you know, boiling in stew of mud or whatever, who reaches up to him. And Virgil essentially excoriates him and says, you know, don't don't touch that that wretch. You know, he doesn't deserve mercy. He deserves the justice of his own choosing, of his own actions. And so he starts beating him over the head with an oar. And later on, upon, after doing that, it seems that Dante comes to this understanding of what justice represents and that there is there's an understanding of justice justice that goes beyond the love of God, or at least his conception of what the love of God represented before entering into the inferno. Is that 
a positive transformation? And I know that's a subjective question, but maybe you can walk me through a better reconciliation that for me right now is, is difficult to make. Yeah, that's, that's such an interesting uh, point that you bring up. I mean, that's really a, one of the, really the central things that you have to wrestle with in, uh, you know, in the Inferno in particular. We have these episodes where, you know, at the beginning, in the, the first circle, basically, of hell, where he meets Francesca and she tells him the story about herself and Paolo. And uh, Dante pities these people so much. He's, he's overwhelmed. It's just a beautiful scene as Francesca tells him. Uh, well, I should, let's, let's, let's look at it here. So this is Canto Five. We have the antechamber of hell, and then we have limbo, where all the righteous and good people who didn't know Christ live, uh, stay. And they're, those people are not punished. We really see a, a sympathy for those people in Dante's portrayal, where, uh, you know, these people who were, these are the great philosophers, these are the great poets, these are the people he loved himself, that he spent his life studying. And they cannot go into heaven because they lived before Christ or never knew Christ. Um, but they're not being punished. They are. They have a vague longing for God that can never be satisfied, and that's as far as it goes. But then he goes into the next level, which is hell proper, and uh, this is where we have people who give in to the to lust and so forth. And uh, again, here we have this idea of contrapasso, where the sin fits the punishment. These people were not ruled by their reason and their will. They were buffeted about by their desires, by their emotions, and so forth. And so now, in hell, they're being pushed around by these stormy winds and so forth. Anyhow, he sees these two shades floating by, and he wants to talk to him. And uh, Francesca, who was killed by her husband when he found her and her brother-in-law together. You know, the, the husband killed him. And this is how she describes it here. Love, who so fast brings flame to generous hearts, seized uh, seized him with feeling for the lovely form now torn for me. So love made made uh, Paolo do this. Love, who no loved one pardons love's requite, seized me for him so strongly in delight that, as you see, he does not leave me yet. Love drew us onwards to consuming death. And uh, now Dante was a love poet before... Uh, before he wrote the comedy, and this is an allusion to, to the you know to his poetry here, these lines, and he has so much pity hearing their story, how love just drew them on, and and caused them to do this that he passes out, he faints, and that's Dante's starting point, one of absolute sympathy for the sinners, but there's a really interesting problem with Francesca's. A portrayal of herself and her situation. What we see is that she's not taking any personal responsibility for her sin. You know, she blames it on love. Love made me do it. Love did this. I couldn't help myself. Um, and that's why she's here in hell, because she never recognized this as a sin that she had committed. It was always, there was always justification and that's one thing we learn from Dante is if you cannot, if you continual, continually justify yourself in sin, then you are damned. 
you can make no progress at all. I understand that aspect, and I appreciate that explanation. How how does the physical act of someone, you know, boiling in their sins metaphorically in the, in the mud, reaching up for salvation, not represent that same either repentance or change of heart? It's almost as if the 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 suffering wretch needs to continue to suffer to some extent before his sin can be forgiven. It's like a personal atonement rather than a Christian atonement. Well, yeah, Dante's working within the, you know, within the framework of of Catholic belief where there is a very clear hell and there's a very clear heaven and the divide between them is is separate. In Mormon theology, we really don't have a hell, you know, a hell proper, right? I mean, you know, the telestial, terrestrial, and celestial kingdoms are just all one, all, you know, three different divisions of heaven. So everybody makes it to some level of heaven eventually, unless you're a son of perdition, all that sort of thing. But for Dante, what he's really pointing out here is that things have consequences. You know, one thing that uh, that always kind of bugs me is this, it just maybe just because I'm a pessimist, but, and I probably go too far the other way, but this idea that everything's just going to work out in the end. You know, don't worry, it's in God's hands and everything's just going to work out in the end. Dante does not believe that at all. Not on a personal level. If you don't take responsibility for your sins, and if you don't make the move towards God, at some point, you are damned. And that's the theme over and over and over through Inferno. They all justify themselves. They all are stuck in that same mentality. You know, when we get to purgatory, we'll see how um, the people in there are no worse sinners than the ones in hell. Some of them are, are, are worse than anyone we find in hell, really. And uh, But at some point in their life, at some point before they died, they recognized that they were sinners. And they called out to God. They looked towards Christ. They repented. They stopped looking in the direction of their sins. And they looked towards Christ. And they're saved. So if they make it into purgatory, they're saved because they reached out to God. If you are stuck in your sins and refuse to do anything about it, if you refuse to reach out to God, if you just stay there and refuse to even call out on Christ the littlest bit, then you are damned. There's nothing God can do with you. There's nothing anyone can do with you. And Dante, by the time, by the time he goes through the end of hell, he stops feeling this pity. He starts recognizing this for what it is. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you see parents who always, who always believe their children, right? Who always take the, their children's uh, point of view against anybody else, even if it's their teachers, if it's whatever. They're always justifying their children, and their children just manipulate them and let them get away with whatever they want, right? And uh, that's how Dante is at the beginning. And by the end of it, he finally is able to call BS on it. He says, no, you sinned. You are a wretch. You refuse to uh, take any responsibility. And you're here because you've chosen to be here. And that's all there is to it. So I see two things going on here. There's, there's one is the justice and judgment of God, which in, in this context is absolute. There's no questioning it. 
even to the point where murder is in a higher circle of hell than fraud or whatever. Like the, the, the order of them is a little strange, but we're not to question that because that's God's justice, at least how it's framed here. However, there's this biblical um, phrase where, where Jesus is answering his disciples, and the disciples ask him, Master, how, how often shall we forgive someone who has wronged us? And he says, 70 times 7. You know, he says, unto you it is forgiven, it is given to forgive all. And essentially let God be the judge, right? And I see this interesting um, way in which God's justice, albeit absolute, has been moved into the consciousness of Virgil and Dante and they've said, essentially, we're going to take on this role of judge, and far be it from us to have pity, mercy, or compassion upon this person, despite the fact that in the Bible that's specifically, it seems to me, to be commanded. And so I think there's one viewpoint wherein it's it's clear that we're not to question God's judgment, and there's an understanding that comes from that. But then there's also this kind of strange, and maybe it's just an adoption of the current day's religious understanding, the the, the harsh kind of um, understanding they had of an impersonal God that had developed since the proto-Christianity, wherein, you know, we're supposed to act as if we are gods, in a sense, rather than being that merciful, compassionate, forgiving um, disciple, we are to be an instrument in God's hand to exact judgment as he would. I wonder if we can look at this in another way, and maybe this will be helpful. Travis, can we, can we say, on the one hand, when we look at the, you know, Riley's saying that someone's boiling in the mud or whatever, paying for his sins, he says that he reaches out for mercy and he doesn't receive it. You've already pointed out, Travis, that in a sense, the time for that has passed. I wonder, though, is he really repenting? Is that really what's going on here? And if we can, maybe for Dante, you know, there's this cutoff and there's this more definite place, as you've said, but we can still see this in a way where if we are in our own hell that we create for ourselves because we don't repent, and it's possible that this very character that we're talking about is not actually repenting. Right, there, that he's in some sense wanting out of the punishment, but not recognizing that there's a sin the way that you said Paola didn't actually recognize her own responsibility. And just, of course, she wants out. Why am I here? I couldn't help myself. Right, So she wants out. But the, the only way out is to recognize that you put yourself in there when you don't recognize your sin, right? your, your responsibility in some sense. So, and then the other thing is, the, another aspect I wonder, Travis, is, isn't what we see happening to Dante, isn't really about, I don't, I don't see him as making uh, neither Dante nor Virgil as being judges or whether as vicegerents of God or in any other sense. What I see, I think what I see here is that Dante is, he's actually undergoing, it's about Dante is what I'm trying to say. It's not about the guy in the mud. It's about Dante. It's about what's happening to him. The guy in the mud, on the one hand, I'm saying, I'm suggesting at least, isn't repentant. And Dante is learning it, something's happening to him, 
right, to Dante himself. That's actually the exact point I'm trying to get to, actually. Because okay. when, when Jesus says forgive 70 times 7, it's implied that the person who they're forgiving isn't truly repentant because they keep repeating the same offense over and over and over. And yet Jesus says, forgive, 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 and leave it to God to be the judge. Whereas I think that Dante, uh, and this is encouraged by Virgil, is taught to develop this sense of strictness and sternness that's the opposite of pity. Like, don't pity that person. How dare you pity that person? That would be to question God's justice. But is it about that person? No, it's about Dante. And it's it, about Dante, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to leave Travis okay. out of this conversation, but I think we're talking <laughs> past each other a little bit. So go ahead, Travis. So, yes, there's, there's a couple of things going on here. Um, what we see in Dante is him learning to see things the way God sees them. These are people who, you know, we read in the scriptures of people who are, you know, have these plagues and these things come upon them. And instead of turning to repent, they curse God and die. That's the mentality that Dante's coming across here. And so these people are not repentant. They've gone into this eternal damnation with the same spirit that they left this world with. And so as Dante, he, he starts to see that... Uh, what they've what they've done to themselves, what they're doing now. This is completely different from, you know, when he uh, he gets up into heaven and he and he talks to to Kunitsa, who was a, a, an adulteress and you know had many husbands and many lovers and so forth. But she's in paradise, and she can talk about her sin without any sort of justification, and she can talk about the sin in general with a proper recognition of its place there's you know she's not defending it she's not antagonistic towards anything she is sympathetic towards the weakness in people but only and this is the same sin she's she's committed the same sin as paola yeah and yet she's in heaven and Paola and and uh, francesca's in hell and the difference francesca. is yeah. yeah the difference is is that uh, in heaven, they've recognized that they are sinners. That's all you have to do. So Dante is not—he is not pronouncing judgment. He's not even judging anybody. He's just slowly starting to understand how God sees these people, and God sees these people as you know. How many times have I tried to gather you and you would not? And so there's nothing I can do. You've brought this upon yourselves. You've taken yourselves out of my power. You have your free will. I can do nothing. You have made yourself a hell. I made the place for you to go, and you've sent yourself there. And I, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't do anything. Because you refused to just reach out your hand in the littlest degree. And, and that's all you had to do. And you just refused to do it. That reminds me of the, the geography of the comedy. I wonder if it's... It's, pro it's probably good to mention the, the idea of why there is a hell in the first place. Yeah, and this is interesting too. So let's go to, let's go to Canto uh, uh, 3 here. These are some of the most famous lines of the whole Divine Comedy. And I'm going to read them in Italian. I know, I know most people are not going to understand Italian, but you, you get the, 
feel for how this is, I think, uh, much more stronger in the Italian. Then, then we'll give you the translation. Per me si va nella città dolente, per me si va nell'eterno dolore, per me si va tra la perduta gente. Giustizia mosse al mio alto fattore, fecime la divina potestate, la somma sapienza e il primo amore. And then, so that's, through me you go to the grief-wracked city, through me you go to, to everlasting pain, through me you go and pass among lost souls. And then this is the interesting part. Justice inspired my exalted creator. I am a creature of the holiest power, of wisdom in the highest, and of primal love. So these are the words painted across, you know, carved across the gate of hell. And it's basically hell speaking here, right? I mean, I'm a creature of the holiest power of wisdom and the highest and of primal love. And that's the kicker at the very end. Hell was created out of love. Because if you don't have consequences, then you cannot be free. You cannot choose to do what's right. I mean, we, we know this very clearly. I mean, we, we know, uh, you know, that uh, Satan's plan was, you know, typically we look at this like he was going to take away our free will and save everybody. But God just refuses to do that. Another way of looking at that is that he was going to take away the consequence. It's not the, it's not the majority view, but it is a minority view, right? Another sense of taking away agency is, is instead of taking away choice is to take away accountability yep which really is trying to how do you say tapar el dedo con el, el sol con el dedo yep so i think so i don't know how, i mean that's you, uh, yeah trying to block out the soul with your thing with your hand right you just it, it yeah it really is it can't be done right you know, you, you, it's like a little kid who thinks they can hide by covering their face. I mean, you just, you've got to grow up and realize, no, there are constraints here. And I have to confront them and I have to be responsible. I have to make things happen in my life. And Dante finds that out, but he needs the help of Virgil to do that. And I think that's significant too. That, uh, you know, a lot of times we need somebody to pick us up and 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 pull us along. So, Travis, while this might be explicitly like a very religious tale, many of the things contained within it that they're not found in the Bible specifically, but there's there's a psychological element to to why this has connected to people over the centuries, and it. it Maybe it has to do with structure. Maybe it has to do with the way the message is communicated. Maybe it has to do with the beautiful poetry. But what can, what can you speak about in terms of the psychological message that's being communicated here? I mean, I see a very basic kind of like a dual nature structure to this where there was the one quote I, I read to you before we started recording by Carl Jung that says, no tree can reach heaven unless its roots descend down to hell. And it, it's almost like, uh, there, there's a psychological element to this that connects with people on a deeper level. Yeah, there, there really is. I mean, this is this is the experience of an everyman, right? I mean, Dante is not some superhero going through and just with powers that nobody else has. I mean, when when Virgil says we've got to go down and take this other path, we, you can't just go straight up the mountain past those uh, 
three beasts that are terrifying you. You've got to go another way and you've got to descend into hell before you can make it out the other side. And Dante says, but I'm, who am I? I'm not Aeneas who, who, who descended in, in the Aeneid. I'm not Paul. I'm not any of these people. I'm just a regular guy. And that's how it is for us. And so not only do you have in the comedy just a, an, a, an interesting story with lots of interesting characters and memorable scenes and so forth, but you have something that resonates. I mean, there's this tr- three-part division. I mean, we are, we are cast out. Well, let's, uh, yeah, boy, there's, there's so much good stuff here. Where do we want to go from here? Um, so you have this sort of enactment of a soul's journey of, of, of what everybody really has to go through in some way if if they're going to get that true understanding of their own soul. You have to search and you have to rack and you have to be willing to face things that you don't want to and uh, and go through whatever has to be gone through in order to get out on the other side. You bring up a really interesting point because I you know there's there's the sense in which you have to experience some of these things in order to really know them, but there's also the sense of being able to witness the experiences of other people and learn from it. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it connects with people as well is because, you know, not only is it a description of a soul's journey, many souls journey, but it's also the ability to learn from the mistakes of others and be transformed without having necessarily to experience all of the consequences of these evil acts that are described. That's a really good point. Travis, another thing I wanted to ask you this, you know, it sounds like when you say that there's something that you can learn from this, it sounds like you're not saying that this is what Dante is thinking, but that you yourself are saying this. And so despite my own theology, whether I believe in a hell like Dante's or that there's even a purgatory, there's something here for me, right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, whenever I've taught Dante, I always focus on two things. Let's let's try and understand what he's saying here. What's the text saying? But really, the most important thing is what does it mean to you? You know, the meaning you get out of this doesn't have to be the meaning that Dante is trying to convey. I mean, that's the, um, you know, that's kind of the center of mysticism in general is this creative, this creative journey to God that, that you build meaning out of, uh, out of these things that, that help you focus, that help you shape your life, that help you give yourself a trajectory. And, and these things, you know, you, you don't have to go with what the original symbols symbolized if, if they ever did have a, a true pure meaning or anything like that. So Dante takes you along and he points things out and lets you reflect on it. Right. I mean, and part of what makes the, part of what makes the, the possibility of the interpretation of the po- of the poem open is the poetry right? is that it is poetry yeah and that's what's so hard about dante because <laughs> it's the 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 italian is so beautiful i mean he is just an unbelievable poet and perhaps the greatest yeah i mean eliot famously said you know shakespeare and dante divide the world between them. There is no third. Mm. I mean, it, it's just incredible poetry. And we there's no translation that conveys it, unfortunately. But you can still get, you know, this feeling, this impact, the, the, the experience that he's trying to convey 
even in translation. And that's one of the wonderful things about literature, right, is you can learn vicariously. I mean, they've shown that, you know, people who read uh, novels and so forth are more empathetic. They've been able to see into people's hearts and souls more often, even if it's just made up people. But you learn to put yourself in other positions. You learn to analyze what you are doing yourself and be able to see things from different points of view. And that makes you a more humane person. And Dante is preeminent in this. Travis, before we go on on the soul's journey, and just so we don't forget later, perhaps we should recommend a translation for those interested in reading. Well, that's your that's your province, Christopher. You're the you're the one who's re- who's uh, at least looked at virtual labor translation out there. You know, in the class we we we've done, we use uh, Robin Kirkpatrick's you know Penguin Classics. And yeah. part of that is is because it's a good translation. Part of it is because I love all the the essays that he gives you after every every canto and so forth. But you know, I think Musa's translation is very good. Um, who, who else do you think? Mark Musa. Who do you like? Yeah, Mark Musa. I'm surprised you didn't mention Dorothy Sayers. Yeah, I do like I do like Dorothy Sayers quite a bit. And I, I like Pinsky, Robert Pinsky's translation of the Inferno and Merwin's translation of the Purgatory, but then Purgatorio, but then there's no I can't recommend a standalone translation for Paradiso, and that's where I fall back on Kirkpatrick again. And I recommend going with the separate volumes of each of the cantos because you get more notes if you want the notes. If you don't if you don't want all the notes, then there's a one volume. It's easier to find. It's cheaper. So, yeah, I mean, Dante is is one of these ones that having, you know, some notes makes it very easy. But don't I, I don't want people to go out and spend too much time looking up references. You know, you should just pick it up and read it as a story. I think, you know, don't don't let. Uh, you know, don't get caught up in the commentaries. You know, Sinclair's old version is actually prose, but it's one of the best. It's, it's a good translation and just enough notes to keep you, you know, oriented. Well, that brings us back to that that journey, right? It is a story, and it's the story of us. It's the story of every human soul's journey, and that's what we really want to bring out of it. Yeah, so let's look at a few of these representative encounters that Dante has in Inferno first here. Uh, one of the most famous and one of the most beautiful in general is, is the Encanto 5, where we have Francesca e Paolo, who are, um, they're, they're in the first true circle of hell. And this is where people are punished for their, their carnal lusts and so forth. These are people who are ruled by their passions and so, and they're, you know, they're buffeted about by their passions. So when they go to hell, now they're now buffeted about by, by these winds that blow them all over the place. So, so this is the first circle of hell. And the way uh, hell is, is organized is you start with the kind of carnal animal sort of things that are common to, to, you know, just animal nature. And then you go all the way down to the deepest pit of hell is that of fraud. When you use your mind your God-given intellect, and twist that supreme gift and use it for evil. So that kind of gives you the trajectory of of his descent into hell. So this is the first circle. Uh, Francesca and Paolo, 
they were both murdered. Uh, Francesca's husband founded them together and uh, and killed them both. They were in flagrante delicto. So um, this is how Francesca tells her story. She says, Love who so fast brings flame to generous hearts seized him with feeling for the lovely form now torn from me. So Paolo was just uh, seized by love and, uh, you know, saw her form and just couldn't help himself. Love who no loved one pardons love's requite seized me for him so strongly in delight that as you see, he does not leave me yet, even in death there. Love drew us onwards to consuming death. And, uh, you know, it's so... And then Dante says, well, how does, how does this happen? And she says, well, one day we read together for pure joy how Lancelot was taken in love's palm. We were alone. We knew no suspicion. Time after time, the words we read would lift our eyes and drain all color from our faces. A single point, however, vanquished us. For when at last we read the longed-for smile of Guinevere, at last her lover kissed, he who from me will now never depart touched his kiss trembling to my open mouth. This book was a galahalt, a pander, the pimp. That day we read no further down those lines. And all the while as one of them spoke on, the other wept. And I, in such great pity, fainted away as though I were to die. And now I fell as bodies fall for dead. So Dante is absolutely sympathetic to their plight. He pities them so deeply that at the very end, he falls, he faints, and passes out. And this is where we see first Dante identifying with the sinners. Okay, he's caught up in, in her story. But what's interesting about her story is how she blames everything on love. It's love that made me do this. I, it wasn't my choice. Love doesn't pardon you. Love makes you do these things. And then she says, we were reading about Guinevere and Lancelot, and that book made us fall into sin. And that's so significant for Dante's view of how hell actually is and how the mentality of the people in hell is. How so, Travis? These are people who are in hell because they refused to take any responsibility. They refused to have any self-awareness. They refuse to do any introspection, any looking into their own life, so they never repented. They never reached out to God. They never admitted they sinned, and uh, and that's why they're there. You know, if we go on again, uh, we you know skipping forward quite a bit to Canto twenty six. Um, let me see. Do you guys want to comment on that on that part before I go on? Yeah. So we can see here a a first step is a contemplative step of noticing, right? Of actually, of introspection, of actually noticing where we are actually responsible, right? Yeah, I mean, that is the, that is the starting place, is, is contemplation, is observation, is looking. And you have to be able to look into your own soul. If there are things that you are hiding from yourself, if you're lying to yourself, if you're putting up these walls, defending things you've done, then you can't do it. You cannot have a true contemplative experience. The only way you get to know yourself is by looking inside, by admitting where you were wrong, and being able to face those things. 
And that's what Dante learns. And that's what he tries to help us learn too, as we go along this journey with him. And there's no real progress possible until then. Right? That's what it takes to be able to move forward, is to recognize where we are. It's, it all starts with where we are. Is there a point at which Dante adopts this attitude of introspection and awareness about his own actions as a result of seeing these examples before him of people who were not introspective or took any accountability? Yeah, we see this, um, you know, we see this with Piero de la Vigna, who was a suicide and, uh, and he killed himself out of this pride. And Dante also see- recognizes the sin of pride in himself. That's kind of where we first start to see Dante really saying, okay, uh, I, I've got some of these issues myself. And, and that's kind of a turning point for him. And he goes along, and again, we, and as he talks to people, this is kind of borne in on him until at the very end, in, in Canto 33, he hears this story of, of Ugolino, who is it's it's such a tragic story. This man was was locked up in a tower with his children, and they just were locked up and and starved to death. And he tells his story that uh, you know he trusted in Ruggieri the archbishop, and uh, well, let me tell you how he finds him here, where Dante meets Ugolino and Ruggieri. So Count Ugolino and and the archbishop Ruggieri. And uh, if we go to Canto 32, uh, Dante says, By now we had already gone our, uh, gone our way, but then I saw two frozen in a single hole, one head, a headpiece, to the one below. As bread is mangled by some famished mouth, so too the higher nod the lower head, precisely where the nape and brainstem meet. Wow, that's really, really graphic. And it's worse as we get into Canto 33. Jaws lifted now from that horrible dish, the sinner wiping clean each lip on hair that fringed the mess he'd left the head in at its rear. I mean, it's just absolutely horrifying. Why read this, Travis? There's, this is, this is one of the most interesting and, and complex parts of, of the Divine Comedy. We have this horrible, horrible image this, this, that turns your stomach. And then he goes on, Ugolino, who is, who is chewing on Count Ruggieri's head, tells us his story. And he, he talks about how he was betrayed, locked up in the tower. You know, he says, because of me, they call it now the hunger tower. And he's there with his children. And uh, he says, I woke before the day had, ahead had come and heard my sons. My little ones were there, cry in their sleep and call out for some food. How hard you are if, thinking what my heart foretold, you do not feel the pain of it. Whatever will you weep for, if not that? But now they all had woken up. The time was due when as routine our food was brought. Yet each was doubtful, thinking of their dream. Listening, I heard the door below locked shut. Um, I, and he says, I did not weep. Inward, I turned to stone. They wept. And then my boy Anselmo spoke, What are you staring at, father? What's wrong? And so I held my tears in check and gave no answer all that day, nor all, nor all the night that followed on until another sun came up. A little light, 
had forced a ray into our prison so full of pain I now could see on all four faces my own expression. Out of sheer grief I gnawed on both my hands, and they who thought I did so from an urge to eat, all on the instant rose and said, Father, for us the pain would be far less if you would choose to eat us. You having dressed us in this wretched flesh ought now to strip it off. So I kept still to not increase their miseries. And that day and the day beyond we all were mute. Hard, cruel earth, why did you not gape wide? As then we reached the fourth of all those days, Gatto pitched forward, stretching at my feet. Help me, he said. Why don't you help me, Dad? And there he died. You see me here, so I saw them, the three remaining falling one by one between the next days five and six. Then let myself, now blind, feel over them, calling on each. Now all were dead for two days more. Then hunger proved a greater power than grief. And that's where Dante gives us to understand that then he um, cannibalized his children. And then he goes back, his words were done. Now eyes askew, he grabbed once more that miserable skull, his teeth like any dog's teeth strong against the bone. Um, and that's where um, it's just so hard to go on after, after that episode, where it's so pitiable. Ugolino up in this tower, he just tells you the story that just moves you and you just are, 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 are you know, horrified and then, you know, pitying and weeping for them and then uh, horrified again. Well, now we're back to, to Riley's question. Should we not pity him? Well, let's... I mean, I'm not saying I, I would eat my children, but... But it's pitiable. He seems like he was between a rock and a hard place, and and what a it's pitiable that he did. Yep. Um. Let's. So Dante ends this by saying they moved on. They saw other people there. They're in this storm. You know, as they go farther and farther into hell, it gets more frozen and frozen and frozen. And uh, and the symbol. Frozen. Yeah, the symbolism is there that that things start freezing up and become more and more immovable, immobile. And uh, he sees these people that uh, they weep, yet weeping does not let them weep. Their anguish meets a blockage at the eye. Turned in, this only makes to their heartache more. Their tears first cluster into frozen buds, and then as though, as though a crystal visor fill the socket of the eye beneath each brow. So these people are crying, the tears are freezing in their eyes, and they can't cry, so it makes it makes them just want to cry more because they can't get it out. But Dante says, My own face now, a callous in the chill, had ceased to be a throne to any kind of sentiment. So that's his that's how he's transformed. And this really, I think, Riley, brings up your point from before. That how you know that we are moved so much by reading this, and yet Dante remains immovable. And it goes back again to, and Dante makes this, his, his artistry here is just amazing that in just a few lines he can, you know, uh, make us, you know, make our feelings good, run this gamut. But uh, Dante is immovable. He realizes that, uh, that God's justice is, is just and that these people, oh gosh, where do we go? This is, this is too difficult. That's exhausting. Like it almost, 
it's it's hard for me to listen to just like it's hard for you to read. It reminds me of when I was in Florence and you go to uh, Il Duomo to Santa Maria Fiore and you climb those steps and you look at that internal ceiling fresco and what do you see? It's this Giorgio Vasari's depiction of hell essentially or the or the judgment, right? Have you seen that, Travis? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, in person it's shocking because you get an up close and personal vision of these life-size, you know, pictures, illustrations of people just suffering almost exactly the way that you just described. It's perverse, it's disgusting, it's beyond the pale. And the ba- it's Sorry. well, I was just going to say it's it's interesting to me if you look at the time period there of when that was finished like, you know, 15th, 14th centuries. I mean, it's it's within a couple hundred years here of of Dante and you look at perhaps anyway the impact or the influence that he had upon you know christianity writ large within europe but also definitely art i've seen in the baptistry across from the from the cathedral the same cathedral there are there are also paintings on the on the ceiling that i've seen at least one of these translations i think it's kirkpatrick's or maybe it was musa's but no it's, i think it's kirkpatrick's that 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 a scene appears from that painting on the cover of the inferno. So yeah, it's, and that's appropriate. We've got to get to purgatory. You've <laughs> got to get us out of this hell. <laughs> Take us out of here, Travis. So, Canto One of Purgatory, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to read a little bit because you'll see. I just want to give you a feel for how different purgatory is now. So this is the these are the first lines. To race now over better waves, my ship of mind, alive again, hoists sail, and leaves behind its little keel the gulf that proves so cruel. So, we didn't read uh, Canto 34, we read some of Canto 33, but in Canto 34, Dante actually sees the devil, and he's frozen, he's enormous and frozen in the center of the earth. And Dante climbs up his body till he gets to the midway point, and then... It's like, you know, he turns, has to turn the other way and climb, climb backwards because that's, uh, you know, now, now we're kind of symbolizing that everything's different. Everything's changed now. In hell, he always walks to the left. He goes down the circles walking left. From now on, he's going to walk to the right. He's going to walk uh, on the right way. And so Canto 1 of Purgatory leads us, is, uh, you know, we're out of hell, and this is how it starts. To race now over better waves, my ship of mind, alive again, hoists sail, and leaves behind its little keel, the gulf that proved so cruel. And I'll sing now about that second realm where human spirits purge themselves from stain, becoming worthy to ascend to heaven. Here too, dead poetry will rise again. For now, you sacred muses, I am yours. So let Calliope a little play her part and follow as I sing with chords that scourge the wretched magpies, young girls once, till they despaired of pardon for their insolence. Soft hues of sapphire from the Orient, collecting gently marked the circles now of skies serene from height to horizon. And this sight, once I left the morbid air which weighed so heavy on my eyes and heart, began afresh to bring my eyes delight. The lovely planet strengthening to our love lit up with laughter all the Orient sky veiling her escort Pisces in bright light. I turn now to the right, I set my mind upon the southern pole, and saw four stars, 
that none, save even Adam, ever saw. The heavens, it seemed, rejoiced in these four gleams. So, it's just extreme, <laughs> extreme difference here once we get into purgatory. And you just find yourself lifted up. Now, Travis, we, we talked about translations. I don't remember whether we said which one you're reading from. It is Kirkpatrick, right? Yeah, this is Kirkpatrick. Yeah. So can you guys feel the difference? You know, I, I, I hope it comes across the difference, the stark difference that we get just in the first canto of Purgatory. Yeah, it's absolutely palpable. You, you can just feel it more than even hearing it. There's such power in this poetry, even in translation. Yeah. If, if we had time, you know, I would just like to read some of the Italian because it's just so beautiful. And the first nine cantos in uh, Conti, in particular, of uh, Purgatory are just beautiful. As Dante, you know, makes it to the shore of Purgatory. Um, purgatory is a mountain that was forced out on the other side of the earth, arose out of the ocean, and uh, when the devil fell from heaven, you know, the devil fell so hard he made hell as he went through and ended up in the middle of the earth and pushed out earth on the other side, and that's Mount Purgatory. So now Dante... That sounds cartoonish. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it? Like Wile E. Coyote? Yeah, 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 I can see that. It's uh, it's vivid, right? Yeah. Um, so here in Canto 2 again. So lovely Aurora's cheeks, both red and white, were turning where I was to sallow rose as dawn grew older in the eastern sky. I mean, this is just the sort of poetry we get here. It's not until... Even... Even your parrot is delighted by it. Yeah. <laughs> so all of, you know, up until Canto Nine, they're you know they're kind of going through meeting some people in, in kind of the antechamber of, of purgatory. Is my door closed? Okay, here we go. That's uh, there's actually not a parrot here in the house. What you're this is just evoked by Dante's poetry here. You're you're now finding yourself in some sort of a <laughs> tropical paradise with birds singing to you and so forth it's like when you hear choirs of choirs of angels right yeah choirs of a single strident uh, parrot okay so we'll skip forward into canto nine of purgatory and this is where purgatory proper really begins um they're they're starting to you know line uh, 67 of canto nine and since my leader saw that, that I had now no cares, he moved to climb with me behind him still the wall towards the height. So they start climbing up here. So all of, up until Canto 9, they're just kind of in the antechamber of Purgatory. Canto 9, we really get to the, the mountain of Purgatory where they begin to climb. And the first thing they see as they begin to climb is a gate with an angel by it. And he's got a sword in his hand and he starts to question them. And who are they, Travis? Oh, sorry, this is Dante and Virgil again. So, oh, we still have Virgil with us. Yeah, so Virgil's still his guide, and he'll be his guide all through purgatory until they reach the earthly paradise, which is at the very top of the mountain. And from then, Virgil has to leave him. And why is that? Well, we'll, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. Basically, well, yeah, we'll get there. So they come, and he says, come forward, the, the courteous guardian uh, began, this angel says, come forward, therefore, to these stairs of ours, 
and there we came to them. The first great block was marble, white, so burnished and so clean, that I, as I appear, was mirrored there. The second, in its tint, more dark than purse, was rock, waste, rough to touch, and scorched and dry, cracked both across and upward to its height. The third, which massively weighed these two down, was porphyry, it seemed, and flamed as bright as fresh blood spurting from a severed vein. And on this third, the angel of the Lord had placed both feet and sat across the threshold, which, as it seemed, was adamantine stone. Now, these three steps represent uh, salvation. They represent the plan of salvation. You have um, the first step that's white. It's pure. This is the innocence of the garden. This is where you know, our parents freely communed with God. And then the second one is rock, rough, waste, rough to touch and scorched to dry. This is when they're cast out in the dark and dreary wilderness. And then the third step, which is bright as a, as, as a fresh blood spurting from a severed vein, this is the, this is the atonement here. So this is, we're, we're now grounded in the, the, the plan of salvation, the three pillars of eternity. And the angel is going to, uh, you know, Dante falls at his holy feet and asks that he for mercy open the gate. But first three times I beat upon my breast. He then, the angel, then sketched seven P's across my brow, the letter P, written with sword point. When you're once within, make sure, he said, you go and wash these scars. So Dante has the letter P, which stands for peccatum in Latin, you know, it's sin. Um, he has these three P's uh, inscribed across his forehead, uh, sorry, these seven Ps, and he has to clean these off as he goes through. And that's what purgatory is all about. Here are people who are being purged, and a lot of the punishments, they're not as graphic and they're not as gory as we saw in hell, but, but they're still representative of the sins that people had. So, you know, people are pushing boulders around, they're doing all sorts of things that are just meant to cleanse their soul. These are, in a way, um, spiritual exercises, and the people are happy to do them. They're excited because they know that this is preparing them for heaven. And uh, that's, that's the huge contrast between the people in purgatory and the people in hell. In other words, the people in purgatory know they belong there because they know they're sinners and they're happy to be doing whatever it takes to purge themselves of their sins, whereas the people in, in hell are in denial. And we could say that's what it means to be in hell, is to be in denial of our sins. It, it's, you know, it's interesting because it seems to me that while sin itself can cause pain, it's not that most of the pain comes from the denial and therefore, and, and the subsequent lack of repentance. Yeah, it, it's kind of like these people are exercising, right? When you when you exercise, you suffer, right? I mean, that's just how it works. It's you, you hurt and you exercise, you're out of breath, you may, you know, but you do it because you know it's making you a better person. You're not just sitting there taking no responsibility for your life uh, like the people in, in hell do. So 
you, he goes through these seven levels that all have to do with the seven. Uh, the seven. Wait a minute. All of a sudden, I feel like a sinner for not exercising. <laughs> well, I'm glad I was. I was directing that comment uh, at you particularly. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. So you have so everything in in purgatory is based on love that is wrong. And so you have to purge your love and get it straightened out. The desire for things has to be corrected to be in, in the right way. Um, lust has to be turned to proper love. Gluttony has to be turned, you know, from, from just a love of eating to being able to control your appetites and so forth. So it's this idea that if, you know, if you don't control your desires, then they will control you. Who's, who said that, Christopher? I think you've told me that one before. It's my own expression of what Aristotle is teaching in the Nicomachean Ethics. I always say, because he's, the Nicomachean Ethics is about happiness. And if you don't control your desires, then your desires control you. And if your desires control you, then you're never satisfied. And if you're never satisfied, well, then how can you be happy? That's why temperance or moderation is, is, an, is a virtue. Yeah. Because it, it leads to happiness. And, uh, and that's actually exactly what Picardo de Donati says in, in, uh, in Paradise. So let's, let's try and get there here quickly. So we get to the top of, of, of Purgatory, and this is the earthly paradise, and Dante sees Beatrice for the first time. Um, Beatrice is the one who sent Virgil to save Dante when he was in the dark wood. And Beatrice, of course, was Dante's love that he met first when he was nine years old and, uh, and loved her forever. And then kind of, uh, as she says, she, he, she rebukes him for, for stopping loving him once, once she had died. And, uh, so they come and here's, um, a real, let's, uh, let's see here. So Dante has gone through the seven layers of the seven levels of purgatory. He's had every one of these sins washed off his face. And he has learned and his soul has been shaped until at the end, Virgil tells him, he says, no longer look to me for signs or word. Your will is healthy, upright, free and whole, and not to heed that sense would be a fault. Lord of yourself, I crown and mitre you. So Dante now has his will aligned with the Lord's will. So whatever he wills will now be the right thing. So he doesn't need Virgil to guide him. And at this point, he sees Beatrice. And Beatrice, from now on until the very end, will be his guide. So, what happens in the very beginning of Paradise is. Before we, sorry, before we move on to Paradise. So, Dante has now aligned his will with God. He's gone through purgatory, he's purged himself of his sins. He's paid some kind of price, but mostly he's learned something. I, I know we're not really covering, obviously we're not reading the, the poem, but can you give us a little more sense of how he does this and, and how I might do it? The biggest change is Dante realizing that he has these sins and that he has to work on these. He, he recognized clearly that he has pride and as he comes across the, the terrace where pride is is a 
cured. He says, I, I, I look at this and I can feel the weight on my shoulders already. I mean, he's, he's, he knows that if he doesn't fix this, he will feel these chains, these weights that, that, that the crowd are now carrying, that are bowing them down when before they held their heads so high. And this is a, you know, similar to, a, you know, I, I think of a, a Christmas carol, you know, where, where uh, Scrooge is warned, if you do not change your ways, you'll have uh, heavier chains than I do. And uh, it's, it's an introspection. It's realizing, it's looking at yourself and saying, okay, this is what I do. And what Dante is so good at is showing you these sins and giving you a chance to look at yourself and say, uh, Lord, is it me? Ah, uh, so that's the real value then in reading, even Inferno, right? And, and, and Purgatory is going through this. And we've had a taste through some of the passages you've shared of how moving they can be, whether they're repulsive or whether they are in some sense, how should I say, uplifting. Whether they bring us down or, or lift us up, they, they work on our soul. And seeing those sins in others, as you mentioned earlier, we can we can become more empath- more uh, empathetic, right? By by knowing the inner lives of others through fiction, and this is fiction uh, through literature, and so that's the value then in taking this journey with Dante through the comedy. Yeah, and you've struck a chord with me as well on that note in terms of <clears throat> the value of introspection as as this contemplative journey unfolds and being able to ask yourself that question which is not strictly a religious question it's very much a spiritual question but it's also a psychological question is it i lord is it i and that's really the question that pulls the most truth out out of you and causes you to stare it in the face and if if there's a a grander narrative that I see unfolding as you go through these levels, it's it's exactly that. It's coming face to face with your shadow and being able to um, reconcile yourself to a higher standard. There's a an unfolding of justice, right? Of everything being put in its proper place, of coming into alignment with the with the will of God, of seeing things how they really are, of what we mean, which is what we mean by repentance. It's powerful. Yeah, it really is. And once you, achieve, once you achieve that spot where you're no longer lying to yourself, where you're no longer trying to hide things from yourself, where you're able to face everything, then you can actually make true progress. And Dante finds that it just comes naturally. You know, once he's on the top of Mount Purgatory, he look, he sees Beatrice. Beatrice is looking at the sun. And Dante tries to look at the sun. He can't do it for very long, even though he says he could look at it there longer than he can on Earth. And so he, began, he begins to look at Beatrice, who becomes a second sun. And the light begins to pour into him. And it transforms him so much that he just begins to ascend into heaven um, you know, without even really noticing it, without even really realizing that he's changed. He's, his soul is so light that he just is drawn to heaven and he's full of light. And the light, you know, as Dean C. says, cleaves unto him and draws it back. 
And, uh, you know, this again is a Neoplatonic thing that we've talked about before, where, where the light just pours over and, and draws you back up to the source. And he begins to meet people in heaven, and, uh, and he learns about how heaven is ruled. And one of the really significant passages is in Paradise Three, Paradise Three, where he's he's talking to Picarda de Donate, and uh, she says, uh, he, he he writes that along with the other shades she smiled, then answered me with so much gladness she seemed alight with love's first fire. Brother, the power of love subdues our will, so that we long for only what we have, and thirst for nothing else. And so everybody is in heaven in, in place. They are, uh, they are, they're loving what they're supposed to love, and they no longer thirst. What's the end of this journey? Well, let's find out here. So if we go and we're, we'll skip the whole, the whole thing here, and we'll go all the way to Canto uh, thirty-three. Now, while 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 I'm about finding the page here. 33 is a, a significant number throughout the comedy. Uh, 33 was the number of years that Christ spent on earth. Every book has, uh, Purgatory has 33 canti, or cantos. Uh, Paradise has 33 cantos. Purgatory, or, or Inferno, has the canto where Dante's lost, and then it has 33 cantos after that. Um, the uh, Each Dante's rhyme, rhyme scheme is, is, consists of three interlocking lines that just interlock um, and go on interlocking throughout the, the whole poem. And uh, each line has 11 syllables, and together the three lines have 33 uh, syllables. So this, and that's the, a, po a poem scheme, a rhyme scheme that Dante invented, because this Christ is supposed to be throughout every, every page and every line of this book. So if we go to, now we're in Paradise uh, 33, Dante has now had his, uh, you know, the, the deepest desire of his heart has been fulfilled. He has had the, the vision of God. And he says, here my exalted vision lost its power, but now my will and my desire, like wheels revolving with an even motion, we're turning with the love that moves the sun and all the other stars. So Dante's final step, and that's how the poem ends. He, uh, he is absorbed into this. He's, he's, his love is completely in line with God, and, and he is moved by the same love that moves all of creation and organizes everything. In, in listening to you talk and take us through this journey, this contemplative journey through Dante's Divine Comedy, the thing that I've learned, it, I mean, again, my limited view of this, especially the Inferno, is, is that it just seems extremely harsh. And it doesn't seem, it just is. It's extremely harsh. And it didn't jive with a conception of God that I held. And it's almost like the entirety of the divine comedy itself is a repudiation of the idea that our conceptions and our ideas of what is just and good need to be laid aside. And justice itself is 
a relational concept that really puts us in alignment with God's will rather than trying to impose our own judgments or will upon various situations. And as much as the Inferno illustrations were just really on a level of disgust that I don't want to go very often, (laughs) nevertheless, it helped to illustrate the point more so than taking each episode and trying to analyze it. The the grander meta-narrative of the whole thing is to illustrate the point that I need to put myself in alignment with God's will. Yeah, that's a beautiful summation of it. And uh, yeah, Purgatory is, 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 the, is the book that I read over and over and over again. Uh, Inferno is a difficult book. But as you say, I mean, it's, it's, it's necessary to see, um, you know, what builds upon it. And yeah, I think that Dante, more than any other book outside of Scripture, helps us uh, get a view of, of uh, how we can align ourselves with God and how we can um, love God and love him in the right way. What a treat to be able to have uh, such an overview in such a in such a short period of time. Thank you so much for being with us, Travis, and for sharing that with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we really appreciate your expertise, and I just want to thank you for being on the show once again. We look forward to the next episode, whatever that is in the future, where we can draw upon it again. So really appreciate you being here, Travis. My pleasure. May God's light wash over and fill us and draw us to him. His love, the love that moves the sun and the other stars, move us to repentance and closer to him, I pray. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. Thanks for being with us. Have a great week.